Well, would you take your Bible and turn with me to Jonah chapter 3? There are 48 verses in Jonah, and it's our aim to walk through every single one of them. Now, if I asked you what you think it would take to pull off a successful revival, I wonder what things you would think would be very important. Let's say you're praying for a revival. What are the things you think you would need? Maybe in your mind you have some ideas. Maybe you secure Bridgestone Arena, land a famous preacher, a lot of volunteers wearing a lot of lanyards, maybe a guy with a sign, he's twirling it saying, you are welcome here. Maybe as you walk in, you're greeted with a donut and a coffee. You think, ah, that's not enough. You order food trucks, concessions. There's a lot of different things that maybe come to your mind. I looked up on Google, a very reputable site, how to have a revival. And the first website has an article entitled Nine Steps to Take to Prepare for Revival Meetings. Number one, pick a date. I mean, I like that one. You know, it's gonna happen. The Spirit of God's gonna move next Sunday. Okay, so pick a date. Number two, contract local zoning officials. I'm not sure why, but uh, maybe the earth is gonna shake from something. Number three, invite a guest speaker. It says, the more well-known, the better. <laughs> Be sure to make arrangements well in advance since excellent speakers are often in high demand. Number four, get ready. You might want to order fresh floral arrangements. I'm not sure what type of a revival this is, but carnations aren't really gonna draw my heart to God. But number six, prepare the venue, mic checks. Number seven, promote the revival. Number eight, prepare the program, theme, brand. Have you ever thought or considered what God needs in order to revive a nation? Does he need a stadium? Does he need a famous preacher or celebrity athletes in a big name Christian band? We're gonna find out what exactly God uses and employs to revive a nation in Jonah chapter three. But let me give you the preliminary headline. When God wants to change a city, nation, or people, he sends faithful men who herald the word of God, and it's that simple. Paul says in Corinthians that when he came to the Corinthian church, he did not do so with lofty speech. He didn't come with intellectual prowess, nor was he anything to look at. He was probably badgered and beaten by his multiple beatings. He was shipwrecked. He was scourged. He was likely blind. And he says, but I came to you so that you would know that the power of God is through the word of God. In this third chapter of Jonah, God uses a sermon that is composed of five Hebrew words, eight words in your English Bible, from an imperfect, disobedient, rebellious prophet to bring about the greatest recorded revival in human history. Maybe it's worth asking again, why is God so concerned about these Ninevites? I'll turn with me to just to Jonah chapter four for a minute, verse 11. It says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, 411, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. What does this mean? Well, assuming that the 120,000 people are children, it means that this is a city full of hundreds of thousands of people who live in spiritual darkness. And in chapter one, verse two, if you look at it for a moment, God had told Jonah 
to go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Why? For their wickedness has come up before me. In Hebrew, the idea here is that the sin of the Ninevites was like a foul stench in the nostrils of God. It was as if the entire city was waving at God saying, sin here, God. What you hate over here, what you despise over here, what's an abomination to you, O God? Look right here. And it says that the sin of the Ninevites had come up before God. He could take it no longer. And God tells Jonah, go to these people, Jonah, and warn them. Warn them. Why? Why use Jonah? Well, how are they going to be reached if there is no messenger? The message of the gospel is simple, right? In Romans 10, 13, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Talk to me. Saved. Simple enough. Romans 10, 14, how are they going to call on him and whom they've never, what? Heard. So the question is, what happens to the innocent man in Africa that's never heard the gospel? Well, there is no such thing as the innocent man in Africa. And how will they call on him who they've never heard of? So when God wants to reach a city, he sends people with his word to that city. How can they call on him whom they never heard? What's the answer? They won't. Are you beginning to grasp the heart of God? He's concerned about the lost. Jonah 2 concludes, we looked at this last week. It says in 2.10, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. This might be the end of really what you know about the story of Jonah, but really the story is about to begin. The curtains are now drawn and the drama is about to unfold. The greatest miracle in the story of Jonah is not the cessation of the storm, nor is it the swallowing up of Jonah by the great fish, nor the spitting up of Jonah by the great fish. It is the miracle that God is going to do in the hearts of the Ninevites in chapter three. I wanna read chapter three for you in its entirety, and you're going to recall words here in chapter three that are remarkably reminiscent of the initial words in chapter one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh the great city and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called it fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He proclaimed a proclamation and said, in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring about them and he did not do it. Look with me at the first verse of chapter three for a moment. It says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what? The second time. We can so easily just glance over these verses, but God is a second time God. Grace is dripping from this first verse alone. It's amazing that God only not, save, not only saves Jonah's life, but he still is going to use Jonah's life. God correctly chastises and reproves his children 
but he does not give up on them. It's amazing. Jonah is still God's prophet. He still belongs to God. I was reading this week, even as I was studying, it's amazing to me that when the women go to the tomb after Jesus had died and they find that the tomb is empty, the angel greets them and say, he is not here, he is what? Risen. And then the angel instructs them and says, go and tell the brethren and tell Peter that he will meet them in Galilee. Almost a specific attention drawn to the disciple that had just denied Jesus three days earlier. Jesus instructs his angel to tell them, hey, also make sure Peter is there. Make sure Peter knows he's not out just because he sinned. It's amazing to me in the last chapter of John's gospel, he makes breakfast, Jesus does, for his disciples. And he specifically is talking to Peter and he's not ridiculing Peter, he's trying to restore him. He says, Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you and feed my lamb. Simon Peter, do you love me? And he's not trying to come down on him. He's trying to help Peter so that Peter knows that he still belongs to God. God restores sinners, not just to himself, but to usefulness for his kingdom. Thanks be to God that he's a God of the second time. And not just of the second time, but of the 900th time and the 100th time or the 1,000th time. And if that wasn't true, this church would be empty and especially true that this pulpit would be. God commissions this former rebellious prophet in verse two and says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. The latter portion of this verse is crucial. God tells Jonah, go and tell Nineveh exactly what I want you to say. Now, this is of course important in the 21st century and in the former 20 previous century because men have always been tempted to doctor up the word of God. And you're going to see why Jonah may have had that temptation when you understand the message that God had given to him to, to proclaim. For years, preachers have been tempted to exchange the word of God with the word of men. Maybe Jonah would have responded like this. Ah, God, I, I see what you want to do. I think you have good intentions, but let me help you out there. That's not going to work. They don't respond like that. That doesn't work anymore. So they get creative. And so many people try to palletize the message of the truth and water down the message. Many churches today operate under this very strategy. Make people comfortable. Jonah... And us today are not at liberty to say what we want to say, nor are we at liberty to say what people might want to hear. Jonah and all preachers for all time are under divine commission to say exactly what God has given them to say. If every messenger of God's word understood this, we would live in a different world. Today there are millions of people that are spiritually malnourished because they've been given milk when they should have been given meat and because preachers share endless stories instead of heralding the word of God. So God says, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Verse three, so Jonah arose. Same commission, different response. If you remember, God had come to Jonah in chapter one and said, arise Jonah and go. And you remember what God, or Jonah did in response? Instead of arising and going, it says Jonah went down. It says he went down to Joppa, down to the port, down to the belly of the ship. Then he went down into the Mediterranean. Then he went down into the, the fish of the great, or the stomach of the great fish. He's just going down, 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 down. And now Jonah has been humbled. And then it says, 
arise. And it says, so Jonah arose. He doesn't say, God, I need a sabbatical. I need a break. I need time to reflect. I've gone through a traumatic experience. No, true repentance manifests itself in immediate obedience. Initially, Jonah would have rather died than obey the voice of the Lord, but now he's prepared to preach. Jonah's message, as we're going to look at, is very simple. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There must have been more words to the sermon. It's as if, you know, in Acts 2, it says Peter preached. There's 22 verses in Acts chapter 2, but then it says in a parenthetical thought, with many other words, he exhorted them. So there may have been other things that Jonah would have said and likely was. But this prophet of God doesn't come into the city on a chariot. He doesn't greet them with letters from officials. He doesn't show them his credentials. There's no pomp and circumstance. He shows up smelling like guts. And he comes to say exactly what God had bid him to say. And we're gonna break down this message, but you need to know that the response from the people is immediate. They were depressed and they were humbled. In the morning, the people of Nineveh were going about their day. They were doing their chores. They were eating, they were drinking, they were being merry. And by sundown, they are totally crushed, weeping and wailing and pleading with God not to judge them. By the end of this chapter, the king is tearing his robe. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. You don't understand the magnitude of what's happening. Kings in ancient times had total power. They were above the law. They did what they want, when they want. Many ancient kings considered themselves to be gods. And for the first time in his life, this king is going to step down from the throne of his heart and he is going to be humbled. Remember, as the king goes, so goes the nation. And this was the most wicked nation on earth. And yet he is going to make a decree saying, I call on every single person here to repent. This is unimaginable. Let me just ask you, what if you get home and you turn on the news? You see Joe Biden in front of a camera and he says, our sin is an offense to holy God. We've bowed down to the idol of sexuality for far too long. We've murdered hundreds of thousands and millions of babies within the womb. We've rejected God's word. We've suppressed our conscience. We've seared our conscience. We've welcomed the judgment of God and he is right to judge us. I call on every single person and he looks at the camera and says, fathers, lead your families to repentance because we are a nation full of sin. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. And yet this was the most wicked king of the most wicked nation on planet earth. A king who was well known for what? For his torture tactics. You know why this king is so well known in history? It's because he's known as the king that would skin his enemies alive, cut off the heads of other kings, parade them around on stakes, and then drape their skins over the city walls. And yet he is going to say, we've dishonored, displeased, and disobeyed the only true king there is. Why is God intent on warning Nineveh? Well, remember we looked at this in Jeremiah 18, seven. God says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, 
And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. It's always in the heart of God to warn sinners. It's always in the heart of God to warn sinners of what's happening so that they might turn from their sin and that he would relent of the judgment that is due to them. This is what Jonah was commissioned to do. And through the preaching of Jonah, God is going to convince the people of Nineveh of three certain realities. Number one, if you're taking notes, that their sin was great, that their sin was great. The Ninevites would have known Jonah to be a prophet of the most high God. There was no question in their mind to the reason behind their looming destruction. It was their sin. Jonah's brief message would have encapsulated the reality of their sin that is an offense to a holy God. God detests sin. It's not a mild misdemeanor. We live in a world where God is viewed as a fuzzy blanket. But Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. God abhors sin. He hates it. And this is the message that Jonah preaches to them. They were confronted for the first time in their life with the gravity of their sin. I just want to encourage you and maybe just inform you. Every single person you have ever encountered in your entire life understands that they are a sinner and they also understand that their sin deserves wrath. Don't believe me? Turn to Romans for a second. Come here. In Romans 1.18, you're maybe familiar with the verse. In Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Okay, we get that. But watch this in verse one, or chapter one, verse 32. It says, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of what? Death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Here's what this means. Every single person you ever encounter has a God deposit within their own conscience that testifies to them that their sin is an offense to the creator who made them. And not only do they know this, they know inherently that their sin, it says in 132, deserves death. And you know what they do? It says that they suppress their conscience. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness so that they can continue to live in the darkness even though they know that sin grieves, offends, and dishonors God. Look at chapter two, verses 14 and 15 of Romans. It says, for when the Gentiles, that's just any non-Jewish person, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Every single person has a conscience that bears witness to their own souls regarding the nature of God and the nature of their own sinful condition. That's why when I've been to Papua New Guinea or the tribes in Northern Kenya, you know what the tribal chiefs have? A judge. There's a judge in every single tribe. There's an understanding of right and wrong. There are people delegating authority for the justice of right and wrong. They've never heard the word of God, but do you know what they're doing? 
They're Romans 2.15. They're bearing witness to the reality that there is a law written on the heart of every single person God has made in his own image. And so when Jonah comes to the Ninevites and says, your sin is great, it's not like they're starting from scratch. And understand this, you've never ever started a conversation about God where you've truly had to start from scratch because there's a hardwired apologetic written within the heart of every single person you will ever encounter. And you know what it is? Their conscience bears witness against them that their sin is great. And what people spend their entire life doing is this to their conscience shoving it down, stamping it out, saying, ah, that's just the product of traditionalism. That's just the way that I grew up. It's just my fundamentalist parents. But God says, no, every person made in my image has a conscience that bears witness to them. And I've already read this in chapter one, verse two of Jonah. You can turn back there. God tells Jonah that the sin of the Ninevites had come up before him. And the truth is every sin every person has ever committed has come up before God. You have no secret sins and there are no secret sins to God. The book of Numbers says, be sure your sin will find you out. Why? Because God has never had to find out about a single sin. Every sin is before the eyes of him who sees everything, Hebrews 4.13, and to whom we will give an account. The Ninevites recognized that their great sin had created a great chasm between them and a holy God. And through the preaching of Jonah, they sensed the reality of the separation. And do you know what happened? Their sin became real to them. They didn't look around and say, ah, I'm only human, or no one's perfect. Ah, I'm not the king. He's really wicked. They understood that their sin was great, personally and corporately. And because of that, they not only recognized that their sin was great, secondly, they recognized that their time was short. In Jonah's preaching, he tells them in verse four, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now here's what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say that the people of Nineveh looked around and they began to strategize saying, hey, wait, how many days? 40 days? That's almost six weeks. I got a plan here. Day 39, everyone gather in the city square. Let's live it up hard. Eat, drink, be merry. In 40 days, we die. So for the next 39 days, let's live it up. Now it says that their response is immediate. They're crushed because the first time in their life, they recognize that their time is short. Their judgment is coming. They know that tomorrow is a gift that cannot be expected or taken for granted. So after being reminded of the brevity of life and their looming destruction, they're pierced and they know that their date with judgment is sure. Sometimes we wanna pace out the end. I've done a lot of youth ministry, as you know, and when I talk to students, they say, yeah, I'll give my life to the Lord when I'm 30 so that I can get through the college years. I wanna go to a university and that'll sour my time. So I'll wait till I'm 30. I sit on planes, I preach at churches, and I talk to the 30-year-olds. When I Uber with a 30-year-old, you know what they say? I'll wait till I'm 60. And when I talk to the 60-year-old, you know what they say? 60s, not as old as it used to be. I'll wait till I'm 75. And when I talk to the 75-year-old, you know what they say? 
I still play 18 holes a day. I'll wait till I'm 85. Because people want to pace out the end. But the Bible looks at you and says, you fool. You cannot pace out the end. Your life is not promised 40 days. You're not promised another 40 minutes. Sometimes when I work out, I listen to like sports radio and I remember last year I was listening to Colin Cowherd and he was commenting on the death of Dwayne Haskins, who is a star quarterback at Ohio State University and was looking to continue his career on the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the day before, at the age of 24, Dwayne Haskins had died. He had walked out of a store, I think, and was hit by a dump truck and was pronounced dead on the scene. And I was just drawn to the way that they were talking about it. They said, it's such a tragedy when a young man like this dies. He had his whole life in what? Front of him. The Bible preaches a strong thematic message. There is not one 11-year-old in here that has their entire life in front of them. You do not have your entire life in front of you. And the Ninevites understood the judgment of God to such a degree that they did not want to try to test God they recognize that's a fool's errand. How, how on earth could we trick the judge of all the earth who sees everything, knows everything, and to whom we will give an account? The response is immediate. Only foolish people try to pace out the end. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed once for men to die. That's a certain reality. The timing of that is uncertain. But you know what else is certain? It says it is appointed once for men to die and then comes, what? Judgment. These people understood that their sin was great, their time was short, but thirdly here, that their judgment was sure. Jonah's message said 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The word in Hebrew literally means to be demolished, desecrated. They were to be judged. There was no ambiguity or obscurity in the minds of the Ninevites as to what was going to happen at the end of the 40 days. They were to be absolutely and utterly destroyed. I just wanna pause real quick and I want you to know, God is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. And this same God issues a chilling warning through his prophet Jonah. Judgment is sure. And because God is the same yesterday and today and forever, God's faithful preachers and prophets and teachers, they say the same thing. Do you know that you will one day stand before the judge of all the earth? I remember reading the book Love Wins by Rob Bell when it was initially published in 2011. The thrust of this book was ultimately that God's love trumps his justice, that his love wins. Sadly, this idea is communicated constantly in our cultural climate, but even if you've grown up hearing that God does not judge sinners, that idea melts in the heat of Jonah's preaching. The most unloving thing, the most unloving thing you could ever do is tell a sinner that God does not judge them. It may be disguised as care and concern, but people who care for and are concerned for someone else do not hide from them these certain realities. Sin is great. God is not a domesticated animal. 
he is a holy, consuming fire. Your time is short and your judgment is sure. Do you understand also that God's wrath is not something unbelievers will one day face? It's something they are currently under. It says in John 3, right? People, I, when I talk to people, when I'm traveling, they'll say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Got that so far? Familiar? The next verse says, for God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. So they say, well, Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody or to judge anybody. Do you know why? The next verse, John 3, 18. He who does not believe is judged already. God doesn't come to the world to to condemn or judge the world because they're already judged. Every single person that is outside of Jesus Christ right now is not just one day going to face the wrath of God. That's true in of itself. Romans 2.5 says that unbelievers are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. The more they reject God and the more they sin and trample on his grace, they are storing up wrath. But you need to understand every single person right now that you ever encounter outside of Christ is already under the judgment of God. We want to do away with this reality, but if you do not understand this, you do not understand what it means to be saved. In fact, we use that term salvation, but what are you saved from? It's not just an empty heart. It's not financial ruin. It's not your worst life now. You're saved, if you're a Christian, from the righteous judgment of God We are saved by God from God's justice. When was the last time you heard a message on the wrath of God? I can't remember when I have. But here's Psalm 711. Our God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day towards the wicked. Maybe you brought a visitor today and you're going, oh gosh. Why of all of the days to bring someone that I bring them on wrath day? (laughs) We've been conditioned to never raise this matter. But if you miss this, you miss why Jesus had to come. God's wrath is not a lack of self-control. It's not an outburst of anger. It's not a lack of self-control. It's not capricious and cruel. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is his rightful, righteous indignation towards unrighteousness. I hear people say all the time, I just don't believe in that God. I believe in a God of love. Two things I would say. First of all, it doesn't matter what God you believe in if it's not the God of the Bible. American church culture bows down to idols every single day in churches because they worship a God that does not exist because they've distorted and warped the God of the Bible. Secondly, If God were not to hate sin, that would not make him more loving. That would make him less loving. Because if God is a good God, you cannot be good and be indifferent to wickedness. Sometimes you watch the news or sometimes I see videos and you don't you just, do you ever get angry? I remember watching the video a year ago of kind of, I had a friend that had gone and gone into one of those abortion meal uh, abortion mills, and there's all those babies just sliced and diced up on the counter. 
What if God went, ah, bummer? Would you look at God and go, he's good? No, you want a loving God to hate that. Now, if the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God is true, comma, and it is, depending on your use of the Oxford comma, then it is the most important reality facing every single person right now. More than any political reality, more than any economic reality, more than the interest rates or the election or your next promotion, every single person you face has an eternal destiny in front of them. Today, many people want to do a PR campaign for God. We think we need to do him a favor by turning down the volume on his wrath and then turning up the volume on his love. But first of all, you need to understand you cannot pitch one attribute of God against another. A.W. Pink says, someone consider God's justice and wrath as a blemish on his divine character. But what does the scripture say? He says, as we turn to the scriptures, we find that God has made no attempt to conceal the facts concerning his wrath. He is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong unto him. The wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, and mercy. Far from anybody ever apologizing on behalf of God for his wrath and justice, you should apologize to God for every single time you've ever been tempted to downplay what's a biblical reality. We try to uh, palletize the God of the Bible. But this is what makes God's love and mercy so sweet. Is he saves us from his wrath. Let me just even, you don't have to turn them, but I'll read for you in Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Do you know the next verse? Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God demonstrates his love for you by saving you from his wrath because he poured out his wrath on his one and only son. There are over 162 references in the New Testament alone that warrant of hell, and 70 of those are uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says, I'll tell you who to fear. Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell for all of eternity. But I say there, you know, some of those are mentioned by Jesus, some of them are mentioned by the disciples, but red letter Bibles give you the impression that the words in black are less authoritative, less sufficient, less clear than the words in red. Every single comma in the Bible is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, reproof, and for correction in righteousness. Judgment is sure. And do you know who is going to be the judge of all creation? Acts 17, 31. Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you know who the judge of the earth is? Talk to me. It's Jesus. John 5, 22, for, even, for not even the Father judges anyone. This is Jesus. But he has given all judgment to the Son. The reason judgment is sure for every single person is because it is going to be exercised by the one who conquered death and who reigns forever. Do you understand this? If you want to be a part of a work of God in Franklin, in Nashville, 
in Tennessee, in America, and across the world. Every preacher that is used by God includes a necessary focus on the wrath of God. John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and you know what he says? Flee from the what? Wrath to come. Jesus says in John 13, or Luke 13, 3, he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. John 13, or Luke 13, 5, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I just want to be able to, and I speak to my own heart in this, we would have to be the most unloving people on planet Earth to amen this and privatize our faith. Now, let's look at the response of the people in verses five through nine. It says, then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let them call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. For the first time in their life, really, they are awakened to the seriousness of their sins. They understood the danger of God, that he cannot be trifled with. He's an inescapable righteous judge. He's the lion of Judah. He's not a neutered dog. And they begin to think, what are we doing here? Everyone repent and call on God earnestly. And it says they believed in God, which is more than just an, a mere acknowledgement of his existence. They believed in him. It's one thing to hear preaching. It's another thing to respond to preaching with action. And they respond to God's word. They're not led to faith by imagination. They're there in faith because they respond to it. One of the things that's interesting is that Jonah's name is not mentioned throughout the rest of the chapter after verse four because he is not the main character in any revival. God is. The goal of preaching is never to draw the audience to the messenger, but to the God who gives the message. Notice their humility in their response. In verse six, it says, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. This is a symbol of total brokenness. And then their brokenness is validated by the transformation in their life. It says in verse eight, it says, I call on God, earnest, call on God earnestly that each man may turn from his sin and from his violence. This is the specific sin that they were known for. It's not just enough to have a vague and generalized belief in God. The king understands we can't trick God. We can't fool him. And so there's a specific attention to specific sin that they must turn from. Same is true in our own lives and in our own culture, whether that be greed or jealousy or lust or immorality. The king doesn't just say, ah, believe in him and say you're sorry. He says, turn from your violence. True repentance manifests itself in a slaughtering of specific sins that grieve God. And it's as if there's this preamble before verse nine, as if one of them says, is there any other way 
that God's wrath can pass over us? Is there another way? Why would God give us this warning if he's just going to strike us dead? And the king responds in verse nine, and it's a question in Hebrew. Who knows? Pause there. There is no assumption by the king that God owes anybody mercy. There's no, you know, A plus B equals C type of thinking. Oh, just say you're sorry. God won't, he'll pass over us. He says, who knows? Maybe God will relent. Maybe he will turn and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. He doesn't seek to minimize the offense. He doesn't presume upon the forgiveness of God. Here is a picture of biblical brokenness, a dependency upon mercy that is altogether undeserved and unexpected. The king says, you never know. God may not crush us. Then it says in verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God turned. He didn't bring about the destruction that was due to them. Now, Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that is from Gethhefer in Galilee. And if you remember in the New Testament, they ask, can anything good come out of Galilee? The ironic thing is that the greatest prophet and the greatest preacher of all time came from Galilee some 750 years later. And the message he would preach bears striking similarity to the message that Jonah brought. And he did it with 10 times the amount of authority, 100 times the amount of authority. In Matthew 12, 41, we've looked at this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah this is sarcastic almost. Jesus is saying, you understand that the most wicked nation on earth repented at the preaching of a disobedient, rebellious runaway covered in fish guts. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And they hardened their heart and rejected him. The message that Jonah preached is often the message that Jesus would preach flee from the wrath to come. Your time is short. Your sin is great. Your judgment is sure. I want to go back for just a moment because there should be a logical question in your mind. How can God be a just judge and just not punish the Ninevites? What happened with the wrath that should have been poured out on them? Turn with me to Romans 3. Because the answer to Jonah we find in the New Testament. Romans 3.23, you're likely familiar with. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Big words, and this is maybe where you begin to lose your familiarity. We talked about this a month ago. What does the word propitiation mean? I want you to, I'm okay with the awkward silence because it's a word you need to understand. Propitiation is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. So in the Old Testament, there's all this built up wrath. Right now, there's all this, Romans 2.5 says, every single person is storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. God had rightful indignation towards the Ninevites. And what Jesus came and did on the cross it says that he was the public display of propitiation. On the cross, what Jesus did is he was the dramatic unfolding and unveiling of the pouring out of the wrath of God for all those who would ever believe for all time. Watch this, next verse, or same verse, 25b. Because in the forbearance of God, pause there, you know what the forbearance of God is? It's what God did to the Ninevites. God did not forget their sin. Every sin in the Old Testament, God had passed over or forbearance, which is his long-suffering nature. But God did not forget any sin. Every sin, every sin ever committed for all time will be punished. And it'll either be inflicted upon the sinner or a blameless substitute named Jesus Christ. So watch this. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, verse 26, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. How on earth could God look at the Ninevites claim to be a just judge, and then just say, okay, no worries, I'm turning from my anger towards you. How on earth could God be just and then not punish sinners? How could God be a just judge and then look at you, Blake, or look at you, Cody, and not pour out his wrath on you? Because he's also the justifier of the ungodly through the work of Christ by the means of faith. And that's why, big term here, God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly because every sin he passed over in the New Old Testament and every sin committed today in 2023 will be paid for. And in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the work of Christ. And in our current day, we tell people what Christ has done for them back then. The question the king asked, who knows, has been settled forever at the cross because there at the cross, the lion became a lamb led to the slaughter. If you're not in Christ, the most unloving thing I could ever do to you is to make you feel comfortable in your sin. But thankfully, God does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. 
Amen? But he desires all men to come to repentance. He's not indifferent to the plight of the lost. You know what he does? 2 Corinthians 5, he commissions his ambassadors. And do you know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5? It says, I beseech you and implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Do you know the picture of Paul, the greatest preacher who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ? He doesn't say, I'm gonna do my thing and see if people respond. Here's how committed Jesus Christ is to the lost. He loves them. It says that he commissions you, if you're in Christ, to grab people by the shoulders. It says, don't you understand that God is a just judge? And don't you understand that he hates sin? And don't you understand that his love is demonstrated because he sent his one and only son to bear the punishment you deserve? Don't you understand your conscience bears witness against you that you deserve the wrath of God? You know, you know, you know you deserve death. And don't you know that Jesus paid it all? Don't you know that, friend? What do I have to do to be saved? You need to believe in him. You need to come to him. You need to be reconciled to him because your sin is great your time is short and your judgment is sure. But so is the love of God. And it's been poured out into my heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you come to him in faith, you will fear no death because Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the what? He who believes in me will never perish even if he die. You're not just a part of a church. You're an ambassador for Christ. So we hear this and we're thankful for what Christ has done and we're invigorated for what we're called to do. Reach the Ninevites of our own time. Let's pray. God, we love you and we're thankful for what you've done for us in Christ, which is the bearing of the wrath of God where you drank the cup. Lord, Jonah's message is indicative of three realities that are prevalent in our own world today. Sin is not mild. It's great. Our time is not eternal. In this life, it's short. And judgment is not an option. It's sure. It is appointed once for men to die, then comes judgment. Lord, I pray that this would make us not only thankful for what you've done, but would remind us of what we're called to do by your grace. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We're not presenting people with an option. We're persuading them because we know the end. So Lord, would that be manifest in the way we communicate the gospel to others? We love you, God, and I'm so grateful you loved us and gave your son for us. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.